You have a Bible? Do you want to turn to Isaiah? And look at, turn to Isaiah chapter 36. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, because it will appear magically up here behind the words, who is God? And we're in a series on Isaiah as a, as a church looking at uh, this. He's a Jewish prophet from the 8th century BC. Um, and when I'm trying to explain to people who are new to it why that would be relevant for them, I tend to say that of all of the people in the world who believe in one God, there are about four billion of the people in the world today believe in one God, and about three billion who don't. They either believe in none or lots. Um, But of the four billion who believe in one God, almost all of them believe that it's this God. It's the God Isaiah was talking about. Muslims, Christians, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, lots of different people would read this and say that refers to the real God. And almost everyone who believes in a God believes that this is the God that is worthy of worship. So um, that doesn't prove it's right, but it means that if there's a God, then it's likely to be this one. And that's, I think, significant. So we're going to be, we're looking at him and kind of using the book, which is a 66 long, 66 chapter long text, just to look at the character of God as he's revealed in that book. Um, And we are looking at the, this morning at the God who vindicates, the God who vindicates, which is I don't know how many of you could give a working definition of it, and I, I found it quite difficult to myself. It, it's sort of, you know when you see it. It's when God lifts up in triumph somebody who was in the right, but who maybe for a while looked like they weren't. God who comes and vindicates somebody who has maybe been downtrodden, or has been waiting, or has been oppressed, or has been kicked around, and God comes and lifts them up and exalts them and said, this person was right all along, and it usually also involves the crushing of that person's enemies, either literally physically crushing them, or explaining that the enemies are wrong. It happens in courtrooms all the time. So, you know, a woman brings a court case against a guy who's kicked her off her land, and she, at the end of the court case, is vindicated by the courts, and he then gets sent to jail and has to give her the land back, because it's hers. That's a vindication, and God is the God who does that all the time. He judges in favor of those people who are in the right. He is a a vindicating God, Um, and that's what we're going to be looking at, and I I just thought a few examples that might maybe help me get my head around how to think about what vindication is, so we're going to look at a a long-ish story. We're going to skim across in in a minute, Um, but just real-world examples of it. Winston Churchill was saying throughout the 20s and 30s, goodness, I, I, think those, I think there might be something dodgy going on in Germany. And everybody said, no, there really, there really isn't. And then he was saying, I really think there is, and I think they might come and get us next. And he said, no, 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 there really isn't. And then when it eventually happened, of course, within a few months of war beginning, Churchill is, becomes prime minister. Everybody said he was right all along. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a historian at Cambridge who said, oh, Churchill was just, he was just a stopped clock. He, he thought everybody was evil. He, he just, oh no, he didn't like the Germans, he didn't like the Jews, he didn't like the French, he thought everyone was out to kill them, and he happened to be right about the Germans. I don't know if that was true or not, but anyway, he got vindicated by the events and got become prime minister. And now everyone thinks, what a hero, rather than what a weirdo, or what a racist, or, you know, it, he's become vindicated by events, and so he become heroic, because he was shown to be in the right in the end. Um, Hillsborough. The football disaster in Hillsborough, you know, the Sun, within a couple of days, was saying that it was down to the Liverpool fans and that the Liverpool fans themselves were urinating on dead bodies and the police were not at fault. It was actually the Liverpool fans because you can't trust a scouser, can you? And then as it was investigated, it was exposed just how the, the fans were not responsible at all and it was actually a huge cover-up. And it all, There was a vindication of Liverpool, almost, as a city. And an awful lot of them still don't read the Sun now, 30 years later. Or 25 years later. Or even Plebgates. Do you remember Plebgates? Re- very recently? Big hoo-ha about uh, a guy. I still don't quite, it's quite hard to establish exactly what happened. But basically an MP and a cabinet member was walking out of Downing Street 
and two policemen were there on the gate, and some sort of altercation happened between them, and they said to the media um, that he had called them plebs, and as a result, he had to resign. And then as it was investigated, CCTV camera, and then discrepancies and contradictions between the statements, it eventually transpired that he hadn't actually said that, but he'd had to resign anyway because of the publicity, and he was, in a sense, vindicated. And the police, and one, one guy in particular, I think, got sent down for having lied in his statement about what was said one of the policemen. But things like that happen a lot in the, in the modern world, don't they? You get this sort of clash of opinions, clash of worlds. One person is then in this horrible position of bearing the brunt or blame for something that's happened when it wasn't their fault. And often they just have to wait for events to vindicate them or for a court or for a government or whatever to say you were right and we were wrong or they were wrong. And that's the kind of thing that God does always in the Bible. He is consistently vindicating his people. He's lifting them up and saying, no, they were right. And I'm going to defend them and stand up for them and defend their reputation and actually their very lives as we go. And that's what this story we're about to read is. It's a story of God ensuring that wrongs are righted and rights are celebrated in the end. But it often requires waiting. Um, And that's something we'll come back to in a moment. But just before we launch into the text, I want to summarize the story for those for whom it we can lose the wood for the trees a bit. And we'll summarise the story of the world, okay? Where else would you start? Um, God makes a world, and it's good, and human beings are not, and end up deciding to do things their own way, and end up bringing all sorts of evil and destruction into the world. And in order to resolve that des- desecration and desolation that's happened through humans, God calls, rather than screwing the whole thing up, God calls a man called Abraham, and he said, through you and your family, I'm going to bring blessing to all nations, and I'm going to bring a rescue to the world. And you then follow, in the rest of the story, you follow his family through several generations, and then as it gradually, in Egypt, becomes, as we heard from Jez, you know, they became enslaved, and then they got liberated. By this time, they're nearly two million people, and they get brought out of slavery into their own land. And while they're in their own land, then God then says, okay, you have a king, and you can have a temple, and you can get established there and be a blessing to the world from here. But soon after they get their king, uh, his, the, king the, original, the original king, the great king, David, uh, his grandson ends up splitting the nation by being stupid um, because he trusts young people instead of old people, which is never a good idea. And uh, the nation splits as a result, and you have ten northern tribes called Israel, two southern tribes called Judah. And they still have this promise that they're going to bless the world, but it doesn't look like it's in a very good place. And we are in that bit of the story, but 200 years later, which basically we've not just got a split, but the northern kingdom has fallen into complete idol-worshipping, oh, look, let's build a phallic symbol on a hillside and bow down to it and say it's God kind of thing. And in the southern kingdom, there's some of that, and there's sometimes good guys. And Isaiah is speaking to this southern kingdom as they are wondering who they're going to do deals with and how they're going to defend themselves against the bigger, more powerful nations that are all around them. And the point of the story, of course, is that Israel is supposed to be a means of blessing to everyone, and at the moment they're fighting for their very lives because all of these big, powerful nations all around them are at risk of wiping them out. And at the moment, the big threat is a nation called Assyria, which is up in modern-day sort of Armenia, Azerbaijan, South Caucasus kind of area. You know where all of those places are, don't you? I can see it. Funny, I just saw on Joe's face a kind of, that doesn't doesn't really help me at all in placing them. And I imagine many of them. So kind of north and slightly east of where Israel is, um, several hundred miles. And the Assyrians are the big superpower of the day. They are the America of the day. And Israel is definitely not. Um, Israel and Judah are like the Maldives of the day, not a particularly threatening international army. And the story we're now reading fits into that bit of history as the Assyrians are threatening uh, Jerusalem, which is the capital city, and it's desperate. 
and no one knows quite what they're to do. And the only hope they've got, really, Isaiah is saying, is calling out to God. But they seem quite eager to, to try and do things their own way. And so what happens is they're in the city and the, the, the Assyrians have trashed the northern kingdom already. So I said there were two kingdoms, north and south. The northern one has already been deported, right? 20 years before what we're going to read, they had one too many full starts and the Assyrians came in and said, we're just fed up with these guys. We're going to deport them all, destroy the nation. And from that point, northern Israel was no longer a thing. And they became Samaritans, a sort of mixture of Jews and Assyrians and others. And they got, they've already been deported. And the rest of Judah is now this tiny little nation. It's like taking just the few of the islands in the Maldives and having America come to invade. There's not very much hope, really, for this point, for the Maldives, for Jerusalem and Judah. And so what, they do, what the Assyrians do is they send this wonderful character called the Rabshakeh, who is, which is the Assyrian word for a field commander. And he, they send him from their camp to go and stand outside the city walls and yell at them. And that's the first speech we're going to read. And what he does is basically say, uh, he trash talks them, and he says, you guys are never going to win, you might as well resign now. And Israel say, okay, well, we're not ready to do that. So they go and tell their king, and their king is completely distraught, doesn't know what to do. But they pray, and as a result of their prayer, the Assyrians end up backing off for a bit. But then they come back, and they give another challenge, and again, Isaiah the prophet says, you must make sure you trust God. And again, they pray as a nation, and the king prays for them in the temple. And Isaiah says, because you've prayed and trusted me, I'm going to fight for you, and you will, you will be rescued. And the angel of the Lord goes out that night and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, which sounds completely preposterous and absurd and weird to us. You think, that is such a large number of people. How did that happen? But actually, we know from history that Assyria never conquered Jerusalem. We know that Sennacherib, the king, there's a cylinder of his in the British Museum. And we know, historically, that this king attempted to take Jerusalem, didn't, and ended up dying back in his own land without ever capturing it. And Jerusalem is, even now, it's obviously still there. Still, uh, a lot, there's a lot more twists to the story in Jerusalem's history, but they are preserved at that point from the Assyrians. So that's the, that's the outline. And now we're going to read it in a bit more sort of close detail. And we'll do it and comment as we go. So, look in three sections. We're going to look at what, what the enemies of God do, what they do, then what the people of God do, which is what we do, and then what God does. Okay? So what, and this first bit of the we have got it, haven't we? Yeah, great. So this first bit of the story is what the enemies of God do, and it's quite, quite long, so we'll read it and comment, and I might even get some impersonations of people going, I don't know, we'll see. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria... That was a weird noise. King of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Easy, right? Just a weak city, we're a huge army. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, his field commander, from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him, so his, Martin, could you be big and scary, please? Yeah. Okay, I'm standing behind the city walls going, and you're standing outside the city walls going, Rrr. exactly, right, okay? Um, and so, and there came out to him Eliakim, oh dear, lost it, hang on. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shedna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Three of us come out to here, and we're much smaller and weaker than you. And you say that, okay? And then he says, do you want to just have a go at the first line, and then we can let you sit down? No. Try and do it in an intimidating sounding voice. Verse 4, yeah? Yes. And the Rabshakeh said to them, <laughs> Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? 
That's exactly how it was, I think. In Assyrian, that's basically it. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, he was pointing and artificially lowering his voice and sounding a bit weird, which is what we all do when we play pantomime villains. So the ramshackle comes out, what are you trusting in? And then he, and he goes on. In what do you, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. In other words, your foreign policy is a mess. If you're thinking of trusting Egypt, they're like when you put your hand on a staff to lean on it, and it ends up going through your hand because it's so sharp and broken. So that's, they're not going to, you can't rely on Egypt at all. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to, of, to all who trust in him. But if you say, we trust in the Lord our God... Isn't it? He, and he immediately starts going, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Pharaoh? Ah, that's ridiculous. But if you're going to trust in God, you must be mad. You're trusting in Israel's God to deliver you? That's crazy. And that kind of accusation gets brought a lot against God's people, doesn't it? What are you actually believing in? What are you trusting in? You just don't understand the reality of the world. It's, the accusation is that of living in cloud cuckoo land, isn't it? You, you don't understand the world. We are bigger than you, therefore we will win. If you trust in them, you're in trouble. Trust in God, that's ridiculous. I don't know who you think you are, but you're not going to be able to fight us with prayers or with just wishing. You're going to have to get weapons, and you don't have any, so we're going to kill you. So give it up now. And actually, that same sort of challenge gets brought by people, the enemies of God now. You guys live in unreality. You are expecting God to do things. You believe that God is active, but he's not. You just need to lump it. Stop wishing him into being. He doesn't exist. He's like the flying spaghetti monster. He's an invented idea that you guys just hold on to. You're like, oh, I'm so weak and so powerless. I'm just going to hang on to some idea of God. But he doesn't exist. So please just come to terms with it. Resign your Christianity. Stop going to church. Stop wasting your time. And the Rabshakeh effectively is doing that in 8th century Israel. He's saying, what are you trusting in? And then he says, if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, isn't it he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now what the high places are, I said about going up the hills and bowing down to phallic symbols or trees or whatever. And that's pretty much what they were. And what happened is Hezekiah, because he loves God, has said, I will not have God worshipped to any of these other, you know, there are these other false ways. So I'm going to rip these high places down. But what the Rabshakeh kind of cunningly does, Martin style, comes up and says... You have dishonoured God by doing this because God was being worshipped at all of these places. You've dishonoured God and now the punishment time is coming. In other words, he's, he's distorting the image of God and, say, and accusing them of misrepresenting God. And actually that challenge comes to people of God today as well, in my experience. People are continually saying, you've misunderstood Jesus. Jesus is actually all about whatever pet project I'm into at the moment. Jesus would never say or do that. God, surely, if he's a God of love, would surely say this or that or the other. You have misrepresented him, and you've all become a list of insults for Christians. Not everyone. Most of my friends don't do that, but some people do. And some people attack you that way, don't they? They say, you have misrepresented who God is, and the Ramshackers just doing that. He's saying, you just don't understand. You have annoyed God by tearing down these high places. And that's particularly painful for a Christian, isn't it? To hear somebody say, you are dishonouring God in your speech here because you don't want to dishonour God. And so that attack is quite an effective one. Verse 8, this is, not even, <laughs> this is like basically, nah, 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 nah. come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. I mean, he's literally saying, let's make, a, let's make this a bit more interesting. If we invade you now, you're just gonna, all going to die. So we'll do it. We'll make, do a little trick here. So I will give you the horses if you've just got the men. 
but I don't think you've even got 2,000 men. If you did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But assume you do, here's some horses, just so we can make a little bit of a fight about it. You know, it's just, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just mockery, isn't it? And again, all of these things require vindication. You know, the, the accusations of unreality and of misrepresenting God and just plain mockery. Israel, as we'll see in a minute, is going to need to wait for vindication from God. But those sorts of things happen to you. you a lot of you get mocked. A lot of us get mocked for what we believe, for being God's people. And again, the same, this, it's not new. You know, 2,800 years ago, people were going, <laughs> and it's quite, have you ever mocked someone else and then they've been vindicated and you've looked stupid? It's quite embarrassing, isn't it? I don't know if, no, none of you have ever done that. Ed's laughing, I'm glad. I've done it. Because I'm quite a mouthy kind of character, so I'm often accusing people of being wrong about things and laughing at them for it. Probably my worst example is Rachel was telling me about, the, about 10 years ago, Rachel was telling me about a, a place called Coz, which exists, but I didn't think it did. And I, I, was, I was pretty certain it didn't. I was pretty certain she'd met it up. And I was like, it's like a cosmic kind of thing you've just invented. You know, I think you're getting confused with some of the other Greek islands, honey. And she was like, no, there is a Greek island called Cos. I was like, there is not. And I was really patronizing her. And bear in mind, I'm six and a half years older than her. So now, although I'm this 35, 29, when it was 25, 19, or whatever it was, it was even more sort of, I know about the world and you don't. There is no such place as Cos. When I eventually discovered that there was, I had to eat a large portion of humble pie and my hat and my words all at once. It was very horrible. Um, but when you mock someone and the other person is vindicated, there's just this sort of crushing withering. And, but at the moment, this hasn't happened. They, the mockery's happened, but they're waiting for vindication. They're just having to soak it all up. Verse 9. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, whom, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against the land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Which is just a lie. And he's basically saying, I'm here on the orders of your God. Mm. And that again, just lying in order to try and make them look like fools. Then, so this is, that's all Martin's little speech to me. And now I, my three little men, we're now responding to him. Then Eliakim, Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So talk to us in a diplomatic language here, but please don't talk to us in the way that all of these people listening can understand, because it's just scaring them. What do you think the Rabshakeh is going to do? No, I want all of them to understand. And he says, this is just one of the, the best, probably the single best trash talk line in the whole Bible. But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That's a good bit of, you know, that is, football chants don't really <laughs> include that, do they? That is, that is class. Um, that's just good old-fashioned insults. Um, which, again, there's been quite a lot of in the World Cup sweepstakes over the last few days, or at least there was until all the teams we had got kicked out. And loads of this. I've got, you know, my eight-year-old nephew was just so excited because he'd got the Netherlands and I'd got Spain, and I was like, Spain, we've won the last three competitions. <laughs> and if you don't know the end of the story, Spain are not doing that well. Um, in fact, they're already out. Um, but I, I was just like, Spain, oh, Charlie, yeah. and then he was just like, I've got the Netherlands, I don't even know who they are. Um, and uh, we were just like this. And then when it went, and then the Netherlands won 5-1, and my trash talking withered. And, uh, and then there was a family gathering around their house last Sunday, and I went, I was so tired, I went to, went to sleep in the end, but he, was, he went up to Rachel and said, where's AJ? And she went, oh, he's at home asleep, and she went, oh, no, I wanted to boast! He was really angry about it, and I just thought, yeah, there's just good old-fashioned trash talk taking place here. Um, and again, you know, that you might face that, you might face just 
good old-fashioned insults for what you believe and need to wait for vindication. They did. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he won't be able to deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city won't be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Again, you're just living in unreality. God doesn't do that. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. Each one will have his own fig tree. And each of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of bread and a grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. It's the false promises of an enemy, isn't it? Saying, just give up when you do. What the Assyrians actually were going to do, they used to skin people alive. And put their eyes out, take them into captivity. Who knows what they would have done, but they certainly wouldn't have said, please come with us and we'll usher you into a land with a nice vineyard. But they were false promises, just saying, give it up, give it up, give it up. Again, that comes to you probably from people who would attack, if you are a, a Christian today, most of us are, some people who would attack and just say, actually, if you just gave that up and came into this other kind of way of doing things, you would find everything would be better. It's just the false promises, and they are un- actually unreal, Um, But again, just being offered to people uh, to try and make them concede. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? So he's saying all the other nations, they trusted in their gods as well. Didn't work for them. Why would it work for you? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So this, I've got a track record here. You know, we've just trashed this and this and this. And again, people do that to you. Probably, if you're a Christian. There was a time when everybody believed, that all Christians believed the world was flat. And they were wrong. And then they all believed that the, earth went round, the sun went around the earth. And they were wrong. And then they all believed this and they were wrong. And then they all believed in slavery and you were all racist and you were wrong. And then you're all this and you're all wrong. And now you've got the thing about gays and you're still wrong. And all, uh, basically, just, get, just look at the history and you'll realize that you've been wrong about everything, and we've always been right. You see how it works? And actually, it's not that dissimilar from this sort of approach. So that is a long section, if you like, of what they do, what the enemies of God say. And that's, that, that's, that's why you need vindication. So what we look now is in chapter 37, at the end of chapter 36 as well. Look at what, what we do, what the people of God do in response. And they do three things, as we'll notice. But they do, we just want to pause there for a moment before we look at what they do. Just say, what do, what do you feel like doing, faced with all those things? No? Accusations of unreality, accusations of misrepresenting God, lying, mocking, trash-talking, um, distortions of what God is actually like, mentioning a track record, false promises, all of the things we've just looked at. What do you want to do, John Bowyer? What do you feel like you want to do? If you're, in this, you're, you're the Israelites at this point, what does it feel like you want to do? Prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. How? Destroy them. That's exactly what you want to do, right? What you're hoping is that you have got some smart archer up on the walls who's just going to take out this guy's eye in mid-speech. That's what you want, isn't it? You want to fight and you want to win and you want to kill, kill, kill. And that's not what they do. But that's what you often want to do. And in our setting, and I imagine it's today, somebody's done all of this, come at you, and some, you know, I get quite a lot of this in public debate. You get people who are really angry with you as a Christian, and they do all of this stuff. They pull out every trick they have. And when it happens in a sustained period, you want to fight. Something in you goes, I want to, 
Argh! and you just can feel so angry. And, and actually, it's helpful to know that that's not how the people of God are called to respond, not just because Jesus said so, but actually goes right back even into the Old Testament. The way the people of God were called to respond was to say, the Lord is going to fight for you. You are not responsible for vindicating your own name. And it can be painful to absorb the thrust of these insults and accusations while knowing that I have to wait and feel the weight of some of those things, but knowing that God is going to vindicate me, but I don't have to. You know, it's the vengeance is mine, it's mine to repay, says God. You don't have to do that. In fact, I don't want you to do it. And sometimes living in that tension while you're receiving the accusations, but the archer hasn't yet hit this guy in the eye, and you're just standing there taking it, that can be very painful, can't it? Some of us have lived through sometimes periods of some years of that, and unjust accusations. And knowing... I. I want vindication now. And I, it's horrible, the idea that I've got to wait for God to do it. Well, I know I should, but I really don't want to. I want to ch- wipe them out, all of them. I want to get out a scimitar and chop his head off. And, I mean, in, that's in their world, not in ours. I don't know if you own a scimitar, I don't. But you, but you want to do something like that. And sometimes, of course, it might be right to engage in debates and discussion and dialogue. And it might be right to point out errors in what the other person said in lots of situations. But the key is, is the heart I have if, in doing that, is the heart I have to vindicate my own name? Because if it is, if I am basically hoping that at the end of this discussion, scuffle, debate, yelling match, whatever, that I have vindicated myself and I've gone away and say, ha, I was right all along and they were wrong, if that's what I'm hoping will happen, I've got it wrong. That is not my job. I cannot vindicate myself. That's not how the gospel works and it's not how God's people work. Some of us don't want to do that at all. Some of us just want to hide. Right? So John wanted to kill him. Some of you are probably thinking, to be honest, I think I'd run away, run away, run away. You're going to hide somewhere. Like, he's going to make me eat my own dung and drink my own urine. Run, head for the hills. And again, that's not the response we're called to have. We're called to stand firm in the face of this kind of thing, but not to regard ourselves as being our own vindication. So what they do is they attack and accuse and lie and manipulate and mock and so on. What do we do then? Well, here's the three things that Jerusalem's leaders do. Firstly, they are quiet. Secondly, they pray and they trust God. And thirdly, they wait. That's all they do. Doesn't sound like much. God comes through for them in the end. But this is what they do. Firstly, they're quiet. Okay, Verses 21 to 22. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, which is what you do when you're in grief, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So the first thing they did was they just were silent. They had been told, you must not, don't get into bandying words with this guy, just be quiet no matter what he says, come back, tell me what he said. So they are quiet, and there's a place for that, when you're waiting for God's vindication, saying, I'm being attacked and accused of all sorts of things. You know, I, I think it may be that I just need to be quiet here. Rather than, I want to yell, I want to swear, I want to accuse, I want to lie, I want to manipulate, I want to show that I was right. But initially, I'm going to be quiet, and that's what they do. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, because there's 37, because there's a lot of it, but just jump down to 37, verse 14, and you'll see the second thing they do, which is that they pray and trust God. All right, so jump down to 37, 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So they, basically, there's a, me- a letter now from the king of Assyria, which he is presented, the king is presented with. He was, received the letter and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, the temple, and spread it before the Lord, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He prays and he trusts. He prays this. This is a great prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, 
You are the gods, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which is the Assyrian king, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Right? The reason why they've been able to kill all these other nations is because their gods are made of wood. But our God made the heavens and the earth. Our God makes trees, their God is made of trees, and that's the difference. So of course they would be trashed, but you aren't going to be God. Would you please come through for us because they're mocking you. They don't think you're real. Would you come and vindicate your people so that all peoples would know that you are the Lord? Had this not happened, had Assyria destroyed Jerusalem and killed all of these people, there would be no Jesus, there would be no gospel. Because of this prayer... And you can say this about much of the Old Testament, can't you? Because of this prayer and what follows, 2,800 years years later, there are somewhere around 2 billion people who worship Israel's God. Right? Hezekiah's God is now being worshipped by you guys and by everybody, I mean, just millions and millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions, billions of people are gathering today around the world worshipping Hezekiah's God. A lot of them don't even know who Hezekiah is. But we are gathering to worship Israel's God and quoting bits of the the Old Testament that Hezekiah knew at that point in our songs and in our readings. And we're studying what he said and we're rejoicing in his God because he prayed rather than wanting to chop his head off or whatever it might be. And actually that crisis reveals what's in your hearts, I think. Right? When you're faced with a crisis, you begin to realize, do I actually believe I can save myself or am I just simply relying on God to do it for me? When your first response in a crisis, as mine often is, is to frantically rush around and try and fix it, you reveal that deep down you still kind of believe in salvation by works. right? Because when something's really up against you, you go, I can do this because I will be my own redemption. And actually, when in a crisis somebody says, the only hope I have is to go to God, you, be- you show that you really do believe in salvation by faith, by grace. You say, my only hope is that God is going to vindicate me. I can't do it. And if you're anything like me, and with our, with, our, with our daughter, when we're just like, we found out she was autistic, and so just, there, it was more so with her than with, him, with, with Zeke. We were just frantically thinking, how can we write the ending to this story so it becomes happily ever after? What can we do? How can we either fix her or fix the situation? Or we'd immediately try and spin the story in a kind of, hey, and look, and here's the good news. And we would always be trying to find a vindication outcome from this tragedy for us. Instead of saying, I just need to retreat and pray and ask God, would you, you, O Lord, I don't understand this, but you, O Lord, are the God of heaven and earth, and I know that you're in charge of everything. Now, please, would you work good from this situation? But that isn't often how we react, is it? Sometimes in crisis, we will immediately go to works instead of to prayer, and I think this is a huge challenge. And when you do that, you know, yeah, grace has got deep into my soul, because that's how I think about everything. So they're quiet, They pray and trust God. And then thirdly, jump down to verse 33. They just, they wait. There's then a prophecy from Isaiah saying, God's going to get them, don't worry. And then they wait. And this must be, in some ways, the hardest bit. They've prayed, 
But the Assyrian army is still there. And they're still standing on the city wall. And they're still like, and he's still like, and actually that period of saying, I've, I've been quiet and I've prayed. I've done what I can. I've now just got to wait for the deliverance of God. It must be excruciating. It must be so difficult. I think, how long do I have to wait? Like, what happens if they don't? What happens if the angel of the Lord doesn't? We are all going to end up eating our own feces within a few hours. And I'm going to be the one responsible. And I'm going to see women dragged from their homes and killed or molested or whatever. And it'll be my fault because I was unreal and I trusted God and he didn't come through for me. That period of waiting must be horrible for them. But this is what happens. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. He won't even get there. Right? You, you won't even see the army. They won't get to that point. By the way that he came as in from the north down the coast, he will return by the same way. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. But what they do is they just, they're quiet, they pray, and then they just have to wait and trust that God's going to do it. All of their eggs are in one basket. <laughs> they don't know how the story ends. They're standing there on the walls going, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. That's, that's all I can contribute and I've just now going to wait for the Lord to come through for me. So we've seen what they do, the Assyrians do. They accuse, they mock, they insult, they make false promises, they take credit where it isn't due, all sorts of things. And we've seen what we should do, right? what we as God's people do. We are quiet, we pray, we trust, we wait. That's not always all we do. I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, in every situation where you're under attack, the only thing you do is to be quiet. Sometimes it's right, as I say, to debate. Sometimes it's right to campaign. Sometimes it's right to be activist about something. Sometimes it might be just working hard about it. But the key is we are always looking for God's vindication and behaving in the way we do in order to serve rather than trying to vindicate our own name. That's the difference. That's how you know whether, whether debating or campaigning or being an activist or working hard is right. It's not that the activity itself is wrong. It's that looking for vindication from you rather than him is wrong. And they, We've seen what they do and we've seen what we should do and now we're going to see what God does. Ready? Verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Shareza, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now, some of you don't really care about this. You, you, read, you hear the Bible, you just believe it. For me, it's very powerful to know that that is exactly what happened historically as well. I, I love knowing that. I love knowing that Sennacherib did do that, and he did attack Jerusalem, or tried to, and it didn't work, and he did retreat to his own land, and he was then murdered by his own sons, and Esarhaddon took over the throne. And we know that from other sources outside of Scripture. And just finding that actually God does vindicate his people God vindicates. He rises up, he rescues his people, and he destroys his enemies, even if it means destroying 200,000 people, when it, which here it does, and that's the largest number of people ever killed in one day's fighting. Nearly four times as many people as died on the first day of the psalm. It's over twice as many people as died in the Hiroshima bomb. So that's the, this is the biggest wipeout of any army ever in a day. And that sort of action, that divine vindication, oh God, would you rise up and crush your enemies and liberate your people. That's often what the psalmists are doing when they say, arise, O Lord. If you're familiar with biblical language and songs and so you'll often find people say, oh God, arise. And it might be just the language we don't always know quite what it means. 
but arise usually is, God, would you just get up to your full height and smite these guys because we need rescuing? I don't know if you've had that where you've, have you ever been in a sort of, look like you might be in a set two with somebody or things might be looking like, they, I don't, I haven't. Um, but I'm sure it's happened to some of us that you're, you look like things might be a little bit, getting a little bit dicey and then the guy stands up and you think he's about nine foot taller than I thought he was and I'm going to find a way of excusing myself from this situation. Um, and that's when people arise. You know, they, they arise and you think, oh, that's how big and powerful you are. And the psalmist often doing that, saying, God, arise, and we can do the same thing. Arise, O Lord, and vindicate your people. Arise, O Lord, and judge ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Arise, O Lord, and liberate Maryam in Sudan. That's basically what a lot of people are campaigning for, is, God, arise, would you stand up and vindicate? Arise, O Lord, and vindicate trafficked girls and oppressed people everywhere. Would you get to your feet, show your full height, and destroy those who are oppressing them? Arise, O Lord, and vindicate me in the injustice I'm facing. And we can do that. We can pray for that because God is the kind of God who always vindicates. But there's two key things we've got to understand as we conclude about how God does it. Right? It's really important that we get this as we conclude. And Peter Nichols is going to come out and just help me make a point in a moment. Um, the two key things to understand about God's act of vindication, which are everywhere in the Bible. Right? Number one, God always vindicates in the end. Always. There is no situation where God doesn't bring vindication. There's no situation in which he doesn't make wrongs right. There's no situation in which he ever lets evil have the last word. He fights it, he wins, he destroys it, always. And that's why, as we saw even two weeks ago, didn't we? he conquers pride, he conquers ruthlessness, he conquers death, he removes the tarpaulin that's covered over people. He destroys his people's enemies, always. That's the first thing to remember. He always vindicates. The second thing to remember is we always have to wait for it. We always have to wait for it. And sometimes that wait can take a very long time. So, Peter, if you just want to come out and... Peter's just going to play a little bit of a ca- jazz. Jazz is a good example of this because jazz is a kind of music that can often not resolve for a long period of time. And if you trust the pianist, if you trust the person... Peter, I think we all agree Peter Nichols is a pretty good pianist, right? I think we trust that he probably knows what he's doing. He's not going to struggle to resolve a chord. He can resolve chords in nine different keys at the same time. And uh, so he's just going to play a little bit of jazz, which is an unres- often an unresolved piece of music. It's a piece of music that doesn't quite sort of land in one place where you'd expect it to. It's kind of jarring sometimes, isn't it? And, and you listen to this and you think, oh, this is all nice and bouncy and quirky, but it's not sort of sitting and landing on a home square like I'm used to. And it, when this goes on for a while we begin to think, hey, I'm sure in a minute it's going to go da-da-da-da-da and we'll be fine, but it hasn't done that. And so you're listening in a way in trust, waiting for resolution. But at the moment, you're kind of going, I'm just going to have to rely on him that he's competent and able to do it. And after a while, some of you like jazz. Some of us, I mean, I heard one person say jazz is like playing Scrabble with all the vowels missing. And some of you don't like that. You find the experience of listening to this a little bit sort of, mm, I just well, come on, land on a proper chord. Come on, John Bowyer, get up there, kick him off, and just play G. And we'll all go, ah, thank the Lord. Okay? And, and it, can be, it can be awkward. Now, obviously, the analogy is imprecise. Watching for your city to be destroyed and listening to jazz are not quite the same. But there does come a moment when, in the hands of any competent pianist, you do get resolution. Ah, That's nice, isn't it? Thank you very much, Peter.
And the, the thing is, you, you, when you trust somebody, you can wait for resolution with patience and confidence. Now, obviously the analogy is imprecise in lots and lots of ways, but I think there are times in life where you're thinking, this is like watching a jazz pianist dancing around thinking, if I was you, God, I'd have resolved this by now, but you haven't. Now, I don't know everything you know, but I do know that you're always able to bring it to resolution. I do know that all things work together for the good of those who love him, but what I don't know is when that's going to come about. And so, yes, God always vindicates, but we always have to wait for it. Sometimes it happens within a few hours. It did for the Assyrians. Uh, for, sorry, for, the, for Jerusalem here. They're waiting. A few hours later, by the morning, they're all dead. That's great. But I imagine that's a very nervous few hours. Sometimes it might take many years. Jeremiah's prophecies about exile took 10 or 15 years to be vindicated, even more. Sometimes it may not even happen in our lifetimes. Right? Paul confronting Nero. Nero kills him. And in his lifetime, you would say Nero wins. Rome is still in charge. Now, you fast forward the clock, and you say people call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. And so a lot's changed. But actually, at the time, you wouldn't have thought necessarily that vindication was on the side of Paul. You'd have said it's on the side of Nero. But many, many years later, you might look around and say, oh, wow, now nobody's a Roman and many, many people are Christians. Ultimately, you can't stop the clock until all things are completed. Because it just, otherwise it's too soon. Two years ago, Spain looked like the greatest football team that ever played. Ten years ago, Lance Armstrong looked like the greatest cyclist, and he was going to go down in history as the unbeatable, indestructible cyclist, rather than the guy who took drugs and cheeses. Now, it just depends when you stop the clock, and you've got to know that actually waiting for vindication is always involved. It might happen quite soon. It might take many, many years. And actually, as we close, that is at the very heart of the gospel, because if you look back to the cross... You think that's exactly what happened then. Jesus dies as our representative and substitute, and it looks like he's lost. He needs, he's awaiting vindication. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's finished. And we've got spitting, laughing, skin being punctured, flesh being torn, everything goes dark, a cry of anguish, an earthquake, and silence. And the whole world waits and gets up the Saturday morning, and he's still dead and gets their breakfast and goes off to lunch and they're still dead. He's still dead. And they play in the afternoon with their kids trying to come to terms with what's happened and some of them get on the road and start wandering back to their villages and towns saying he's still dead. We had hoped we were wrong. And they're waiting and waiting. Silence. Waiting. Silence. And then God vindicates his servant. And he says he was right and everybody else was wrong and Caesar's going to go and death has gone and his enemies are conquered, and the Satan is out, and the cord is resolved, and Jesus wins. That's the very heart of how the gospel works. And so we shouldn't be surprised if, as God's people, we are those who wait for vindication in expectation of the day he makes all things right. If maybe just John could help come out and help us just kind of conclude in a, a short time of worship. But could you, could you stand as we just... I just want to, again, pray, because there'll be specific areas in which we need to hear this for our own situations. Some of us think, I don't really need this. My job's going great. My family's going great. I'm not waiting for vindication at all. Others of us may feel like, I'm desperate need of this. Father, I thank you for your track record of overcoming uh, accusations and lies and mockery and insults and all of the things that people throw at your people. You've got a very long history of vindicating your people. And some of us now, well, none of us are about to have our cities invaded, we don't think, but many of us in different ways need you to come through for us 
and to vindicate us. And we want to say, I want to say on our behalf, two things to you about that. One, I trust that you will always lift me up and vindicate me in the end. I know you will. I know it's never going to get to the end of history and look back with a camera and say, oh, God, didn't, God let me down there. That will never, ever happen. I know that. But two, I also know that I may well have to wait a long time for it. And in the waiting, which can, as it is for me with my kids and as it is for many people here with their, uh, their job situation, their family situation, accusations, things being said about them, Lord, it can be painful in the waiting. And we ask you, God, for help. We ask you for strength. We ask you to help us trust and stand firm and not swipe the heads off, but at the same time not run away and hide. We want to be those who stand in trust, in quietness, and in prayer, waiting for the deliverance of God, which we know will come. Oh God, would you resolve that cord? Lord, would you resolve the cord? Would you come quickly? Oh Lord, would you may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. Vindicate your people, God, and help us stand firm in the waiting. In Jesus' name, amen.